and turn with me to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. We are up to the 8th chapter as we've been working our way through uh, chapter by chapter. And I'll read from verse, from verse 1 right through to verse 39. So it's a, it's a long passage of scripture, but I'm sure you won't mind. So 8 verse 1, it starts and it, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, Grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he has already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. 
For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord and that is the eighth chapter of the book of Romans and this chapter has been called by commentators and those that study the Bible and various people it's been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith or it's been called the tree of life in the midst of the garden of Eden Uh, Some have called it the highest peak in a range of mountains, and they're searching for words to describe how great this chapter is. And Douglas Moo, another commentator, he says, such are some of the metaphors used by interpreters who extol chapter 8 as the greatest passage within what so many consider to be the greatest book in all of Scripture. And whether that's true or not, the general consensus is that the chapter that we have in front of us this morning is a significant chapter of scripture. And we don't have time to go through every verse in detail either, so we'll be here till the AGM, I think. But, but we're going we're gonna to go through more of a, rather than a detailed exposition of every verse, we're just going to outline some of the main themes. And so we're going to see, as we look at this chapter, we're going to see two dominating powers Uh, And these two dominating powers are going to lead to two different experiences. So that's our our outline, four points that will will give some structure to what I say. Um, And these these things that we're looking at, these these two different experiences, these two dominating powers, they're they're themes that we started to look at when we looked at chapter 7. And the same ideas will just continue right through to chapter 8. So there's there's a continuation of the, the subject matter between these two chapters. And before we start... 
I think it's important to give you some idea of the context of where this eighth chapter stands, just to recap where we've been, and because this eighth chapter will really pull together all the theology, all the gospel truth that we've been taught, and he's going to condense it, and, and it's going to lead to an expression of praise at the end of the chapter, uh, but he's going to start winding everything up, and it's the end of a big section, the first eight chapters of all the theological gospel truth that Paul's been teaching us. So if you think back with me to to chapters 1 and 2, Paul's focus was on the law of God. We saw that God's perfect and holy law was the standard that God requires of mankind. And he gathered up the entire mass of humanity in his mind. You remember uh, back to those chapters when we looked at them, and he put them, he put all of humanity on trial before God. And the result was that Both the unrighteous Gentiles and the self-righteous Jews, they were all found to be guilty before God. The Gentiles had knowledge of God's law that was made known to them by way of conscience, that, that voice in their mind that accuses or excuses their behavior. It was that internal voice of condemnation. It was like a shadow that they couldn't outrun, and they were left without excuse. And second, by that, we saw by the evidence of creation, the fact that there is a created world, um, that they had knowledge of God as a creator in which they were forced to live. All right, so we saw, secondly, that we're talking about these, these Gentiles, um, and they, they had knowledge of God by, by way of creation, uh, that internal voice. And secondly, there was by way of evidence that Paul showed that because there was a created world, everybody knows that there must be something that caused it. Um, and so the, the Gentiles, they even had knowledge of God as creator. And, and they were forced, given that knowledge in themselves, they were forced to live a lie as they suppressed the truth. They pushed it to the back of their mind. Um, they suppressed the truth. And so it wasn't that they didn't have any evidence of the existence of God. The reality that Paul showed us was that they didn't want, their, uh, they didn't want to accept the knowledge that God had already given them. It was a problem with their will. And so there is no such thing. We can say this. There is no such thing as an honest atheist. And this was what we started to see was the piercing anthropology of the Apostle Paul. And anthropology is a word that deals with the the subject of knowing about mankind, knowing what we're like, knowing how we're made up and how we function and work. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul pressing right into them and not taking what they say on the outside and getting right to the heart of the matter and saying, you know deep within yourself that there is a God and you willfully reject him. That was the anthropology of the Apostle Paul in those first two chapters. And because they uh, refused to, to do this against what they knew in themselves to be true, we saw that the result was that they rejected reason. They threw logic out the window, and, and God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which were uh, ungodly. And professing to be wise, they became fools. And the Jews, we looked at the Jews as well, the religious people of the day, and they were no better Uh, Although they acknowledged God, they believed in the God, they even believed the the Old Testament scriptures were the word of God, and and although, in spite of all those things, they they said that they kept God's law. They were found to be practicing the very things that the law of Moses condemned, and so they, they were seen to be hypocrites, and they too were living a lie. And the result was that the whole world, the legalist and the lawless, 
both stood guilty before God and deserving of his judgment and condemnation. In chapter 3, we saw the good news of the gospel, that we can be justified by faith alone. And this was like a light bursting forth in the darkness with the backdrop of that helpless, sinful condition. In chapter 4, we saw that even though we weren't righteous ourselves, the perfect life of Jesus was imputed. It was given to us. And we were treated as if we lived his life. In chapter 5, we saw this concept of imputation uh, was grounded in the concept of corporate solidarity or representative headship, which means when Adam sinned, he represented all of humanity. And all that descended from him were born guilty. But Christ, we saw, was a second Adam. He was a second representative, and he kept God's law perfectly, and all that were united to him through faith uh, were, were treated as if they'd lived his perfect life. That's how we were justified and forgiven from our sin, but they, that we now have this new representative in Christ. And, the, and as the, we came to the fifth chapter, and we, we saw that that was the theological center of and heart of Paul's theology. And just as it had implications that went back into chapter 4 and to chapter 3 uh, in terms of the doctrine of our justification, our forgiveness of sin, its implications also stretch forward into chapters 6 and 7 and 8 when we're dealing with the subject of our sanctification. But the center is all based around our union with Christ. When we believe in him, we're joined to him. He represents us, and every blessing we have as a Christian comes to us by way of our union with Christ. So five is in the middle, four and three, and then it stretches back the other way, our justification and our sanctification. And so, well, you remember while we were considering the doctrine of justification... We were very careful to say that it was a legal declaration, uh, that it was an alien, something from outside of ourselves that was declared about us. It was an imputed righteousness that was given to us. And, and we were making it very clear that justification, our forgiveness of sins, God was not actually making us righteous in and of ourselves. It was a righteousness given to us. But now, uh, when we're considering the subject of sanctification, his making us Uh, holy. And this is the immediate context of the eighth chapter as we come up to it. This is exactly what we are talking about. So God doesn't just forgive our sin and say, that's it. My saving work is finished. He actually starts to change us and he actually starts to make us righteous. Uh, He fixes us up. He makes us new creations and begins the process of restoration, which is to conform us back into the image of of himself. You remember Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God and we fell, became corrupt, and now he's restoring us and fixing us. And so just as Adam passed on the guilt of sin, which deserves condemnation, he also passed on to mankind a corrupt and sinful nature, which is makes up the very core of who we are and how we act. And it's this double problem that requires a double solution in the gospel. And justification and sanctification answer these two parts of our our problem with sin. We need to be delivered from both the penalty, that's the guilt, that's our forgiveness, 
and the power of sin. That's the reigning principle that dominates us. That's our talking about our nature that causes all of the actions that, that come out of our life. And as we come into this eighth chapter, our deliverance from the power of sin is what occupies our mind. That's what's in focus. Our deliverance from the power, the influence it holds over the way that we live our life. And because of the sheer number of people here this morning, I'm, I'm pretty certain that there are some here that are currently living under that very power of sin. And as I talk, you, you don't just know, but you feel exactly what I'm talking about. You know that there's, there's a sin or sins in your life that dominate you, and they, it's something that owns you. And, and if that's you this morning... I want you to listen very carefully because when God saves us, he doesn't do half a job. He's not like, like me that, that gets some things done. But he does a whole job. He, he goes the whole way. And I want that to be an encouragement to you because when God saves a sinner, he not only forgives and cancels our sin, but he breaks the power of canceled sin and he changes us from the inside. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we can say this, for every single person that he forgives, he fixes. That's a, a Christian law, or you could say a, a truth of the universe maybe. For every single person that he forgives, he fixes. And that's why we say that there's a necessary, that means it must be a necessary connection between the doctrine of justification, our forgiveness of sins, and our sanctification, his making us, changing us, making us righteous. Uh, so he never does one without the other. And there's the, perhaps you've heard the, the well-known saying, it says, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. That's, that's another way you can remember it. But our first point, our first point is the, the dominating power. So it's the, the first of two dominating powers that we're going to look at, and it's called the flesh. And I want you to know right up front what the, what the two dominating powers are that we're speaking about. The first one is the flesh, and the second one we're going to see in, in this, this chapter is called the spirit. And we'll look at them in that order. We're going to see the flesh, and then we're going to see the spirit. They stand in stark contrast to each other. And as I said, they, they continue through from chapter 7. And in Romans 7, 5, you can turn there if you want. Romans chapter 7, verse 5, perhaps just a page back. Uh, we saw the dominating power of the flesh was described in 7 verse 5, and it says, while we were in the flesh, that's the realm that we were in, looking back to our past life if we're a believer, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And in Romans 7, 6, we saw the contrasting category, the very next verse and it says, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit. So there's the flesh and the spirit. And the object is both of them are serving with their eye to the law of God. It's not that we come to the New Testament or we come to saving faith in Christ and then we leave God's law behind. But God's law stands as an immutable fixed standard those that are in the flesh are trying to keep it and can't. And those that are in the spirit are given a new ability where they're still looking to keep and live according to God's law. They don't throw God's law away. So, so understand that as well. But that's the two categories, the flesh and the spirit. 
Uh, and if you look now, if you flick over a page back to Romans 8, 8 verse 5, what Paul does is he recapitulates, which means he, he goes back to the same subject of this, the subject of the flesh and he, and he explains it and elaborates on it in more detail. So if you look at Romans 8 verse 5, it says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the spirit. And so you can see really clearly there's two categories that we're talking about, the flesh and the spirit. Verse 6 says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that gives a, a description of what it's like to be in the flesh. And John MacArthur, he defines the idea of the flesh as this. He says, being in the flesh, being according to the flesh, simply means being unregenerate. And so Matthew's been teaching in John chapter 3 about the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, where the wind blows and it causes people to be born again. It causes them to be regenerate. So being in the flesh, being according to the flesh, simply means being unregenerate. It's the opposite. And dominated, is a key word, dominated by sinful impulses. The flesh is Paul's word for fallen human nature apart from God. He goes on and says it's corrupt, directed and controlled by sinful impulses. That's what it is to live in the flesh. Another commentator, he, he, he notes the words, uh, the Greek words that are translated think in verse 5 and mind in verse 6. He notes that these words come from the same Greek root and it's a root that connotes not purely mental process, but more broadly, the general direction of the will. And he says it's encompassing, and then he quotes John Calvin, it encompasses all the faculties of the soul, reason, understanding, and affections. It's a whole broad picture, which means it speaks of the totality and disposition of a person, their overall bent, which means that the way that they're leaning and the ruling principle that characterizes their life. And Douglas Moo, again, he describes the flesh as, and he says this, it's shorthand for the principle and power of the godless world. And when you look around the world today, this is what you see. You see people living in the flesh and you see consequences coming from people that live according to the flesh, that live in the flesh. Uh, and so these, these verses at the beginnings of, of Romans 8 are some of the, the clearest expressions of what we call the, the doctrine of total depravity, or you might call it total inability. It describes the hopeless and and the, the hopelessness and the inability of a, of a sinner to change their nature. The biblical picture, uh, I think the prophet Jeremiah, you know this well, it talks about the leopard who can't change their spots. There's something built into what they are. No matter what they decide, no matter what they choose to eat, no matter where they go, they can't change their spots. There's something about their nature that is fixed and in place, and it's outside uh, the realm of possibility for the leopard to change his spots. And in the same way, it's impossible for an Ethiopian, it says, to change his skin. So we can't change our skin color. There's certain things that are built into the nature of our being. And Jeremiah, I think he goes on and says, So may you who are evil do good. And the picture is that we have 
not a problem with skin color. We don't have a problem with uh, spots, or some of us might, but we, we have a problem with our nature, something, uh, an evil nature that we can't change about ourselves. That's the biblical uh, picture that's given. And so we see the doctrine of total depravity, that a description of the hopelessness and inability of a sinner to change their sinful nature. In verse 7 it says, the flesh, and we start looking at this description in a bit more detail. Verse 7 says, the flesh is hostile toward God. Those in the flesh have a hatred or an enmity of God. You could think of it as a repulsion to him. It's a total life direction that is innately hostile to God. That is the biblical picture of the person living in the flesh. And, and while some would claim to be neutral, uh, the hostility is quickly exposed when, when you take that person who might even present, pretend to be nice or neutral or unconcerned and you, you expose them to God's law and their true colors come out, And verse 7 describes this by saying, For it does not subject itself to the law of God. And to be subject is to come under. It does not come under the law of God. It doesn't become a subject of the law of God. Which means that those in the flesh seek to be their own authority. And so we could think of this as a sickness or an idolatrous disposition of self-gratification and rebellion to God. That's what it is to be in the flesh. And to make their situation complete, verse 7 goes on and it concludes by adding three powerful words. And it says, they are not even able. They are not even able to to submit to God's law. That's the picture. Those, Those are clear, powerful words. They are not even able to submit to God's law. And I want you to let that biblical concept of inability the inability of someone in the flesh to sink in. That is a, a, key, a key truth that we need to understand. So Christianity is not just a, a simple choice that someone makes. It involves that, but it's so much more than that. Uh, we can't cheapen and diminish the miracle of our salvation. Regeneration, that amazing work of God that we're talking about, is a powerful act of God on behalf of sinners that are unable to save themselves. Christianity is a rescue from a helpless situation. It's not one of the two things that I could easily decide to do. That's why we call it salvation, because we were saved. Uh, when, and, and it's just so much more. So it's, uh, Christianity is a rescue from a helpless situation, and God does for us in salvation what we cannot do for ourselves. And verse 8 says it like this. It continues on and it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are unable to. They cannot. It's just rule the line under it and, and let that sink in. Those in the flesh cannot submit to God. And so that's my first point. This is the first dominating power. And that's why I use the word dominating because it rules and reigns over. We were spoken of as being in bondage to sin, slaves of sin. We can't escape from its power. This is the first dominating power in these passages. Um, And so this is the realm of all who are outside of union with Jesus Christ. That's the condition. My second point is the 
first experience. And so we've seen the first dominating power as being in the flesh. The first experience, what is it, what is it like to be in that condition? So this is my second point, and it corresponds obviously to the, the point we've just had. And this one we'll cover a little quickly because we looked at it in some detail a few weeks ago. And when we looked at chapter 7, and we saw that it was vividly and passionately illustrated at the end of chapter 7. This was where Paul gave his impassioned demonstration of the painful and frustrating experience of being in the flesh. That was his condition, where he acknowledged that God's law was holy and righteous and good. And he set out in the flesh, in his own strength, to try to keep God's law. Uh, verse 7, verse 14, it said this, For we know that the law is spiritual. So he's acknowledging that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. But he says this, But I am of the flesh. That's his condition. Sold into bondage of sin. And that's exactly how we defined it. And he couldn't have been any clearer than this. He was describing what it was like to be in the flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. And in verse 18, he says, He knew that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me. He knows what's right. He's got some desire to do what's right, but the doing of the good is not, and it stops short of being able to do. There's this frustrating knowledge where he knows, but he he can't do it. And we saw that his will was deficient. He didn't have enough willpower to get him over the line to actually do the things that he knew he should do. He needed some enabling and sanctifying power. He needed something bigger than himself, but he didn't know where to look. He looked to the law, and we saw last time that the law held out that elusive promise that the one that does these things shall live by them. If you can keep God's law, you can have eternal life. That's the standard to reach eternity. And so he saw that, and his eyes lit up, and he tried to keep it. He thought that was the way of life. But he said in that same chapter, he said it deceived him. It was futile. That was not the way to get to life. He he could never, what was he thinking? He could never keep God's perfect law. He found that there was a problem. He said that evil, there was this principle, this reigning principle in him, that evil was present in him, in his very nature, and it was preventing him. Ultimately, and in the words, uh, this is in chapter 7, verse 23, he says, I was a prisoner of the law of sin which was in my members. He was a prisoner. And it was this picture of defeat, this futile experience of the flesh that led to the cry for help in verse 24. And what does he say? You know it. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of Death. He's, he's literally exhausted his own effort and he cannot save himself. And he is just crying out for someone to do for him what he can't do for himself. And that is the helpless experience he was trying to communicate. And he was looking back. And I believe he was feeling what he used to feel. And when we look back on the state that we were once in, we know that feeling as well. We know the, the pain, the enslavement that sin had over us. And so we know that feeling. Um, but, but that's what he cried out. And that is the helpless experience he's trying to communicate. This is the useless situation of all those that look to the Bible as a set of rules to keep to try to earn God's favor. This is the pitiful situation of all those that reject God but still have 
And this is the frustrating part. Even Gentiles still have a dim reflection of God's law written on their hearts, knowledge inside of themselves, that bears witness to the truth via their conscience and via creation. They, they can't get rid of it. They, they almost can, but there's still that knowledge there. And so there's no sadder person in the world than one that denies the knowledge of God while deep down they know it to be true. They live a lie. That's a, that's a sad way to live. This is the utter misery of sin. And perhaps there's no better word to describe it than that. The Puritans use that a lot. This is the misery of sin. And no matter who we are or what level of revelation we have of God's law, we can have a Bible, we can have a conscience. doesn't matter how much of it we have, we can't escape it and we can't completely suppress it. If we acknowledge it to be holy and righteous and good, if we say, well, well I, I can see that there's a sense of right or wrong in my mind, I can acknowledge that the Bible gives a good sense of God's morality. The frustration is that we can't keep it. Even if we acknowledge it, we can't keep it. Our sick and sinful hearts try to hide our failure in legalism and just trying to keep the rules. Uh, but on the outside, where we're trying to look good, Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs on the outside, but inwardly they're full of dead men's bones, corruption, sin, uh, passions. The inside was corrupt, so they were hypocrites. Alternatively, we can try to run from God. We can deny his existence. We can let ourselves try to satisfy the lusts of our sinful hearts with all the delights of the world. Whatever we want, we can let ourselves have it. That's another option we can take. But all the passion and pleasure that looked so enticing, in time, it too deceives us. And it doesn't give the happiness that we craved. It leaves us broken. It leaves us in shame. It leaves us feeling guilty, uh, depressed and ruined. And, and these are all huge contributors to uh, what we'd describe today as mental health issues. Uh, the Word of God has much to say about our mental health. And these are huge contributors. Sin, guilt, shame. And sin doesn't just affect ourselves. Uh, when we're trapped in that state or we look back to when we're in that state, we see that it starts to affect and ruin the lives <coughs> of other people around us. And so this is the, the, the picture, the experience, the misery of sin. And it's the inevitable experience of those living in that state, in the flesh. In the flesh, miserable. Uh, it's, a, it's another rule of the universe or a Christian law that to live in the flesh is going to lead to a miserable life and a life of death and destruction and failure, futility and hopelessness. But I want to tell you today, if that does describe you, uh, you don't have to live that life anymore. I think someone's been cutting onions under my... <laughs> yeah. But the, the third point is the... Um, we saw the first point was the, the dominating power of sin. And the second point is the, another dominating power. And it's the spirit... And so if you look to um, the first verse, chapter 8, verse 1, <coughs> excuse me, the first verse in Romans 1. So we come out of that picture of uh, Paul's futility and his frustration, his, his helpless situation, and we start to see the, the real beauty of this chapter. 
And so after one of the highest expressions of the misery of sin, he's literally crying out to God for, for, to be saved and delivered. And so after one of the highest expressions, it comes one of the highest expressions of the joy of our salvation. And it's this stark contrast that, that starts to the color in this chapter. And we can understand why the commentators, why the people that study this passage uh, think so highly of it and Christians that value it so, so highly. So in chapter 8 verse 1 it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those simple words... Um, they couldn't be any sweeter. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Everything that we once, what's just plagued our minds, troubled us and weighed us down is all gone. And so it's an immense relief as we come into the eighth chapter or as we look back on our own life to know that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That is those that simply believe and rest in Jesus Christ. And so we do, we start to understand the structure of this uh, eighth chapter, and I'm going to make myself, I'm going to show my ignorance. It's like a great singer, someone who's just belting out. You know, you're watching them, perhaps it's on TV or at a concert, and they are just singing, and you think they're at 100%. They're at the highest note or the highest level that they can reach, and, and you think that they're at the highest bit, but then at the end, they, they lift it up to even another level. You didn't even think it was possible, and their voice is just powering out the song, and, and you're just, you're breathless. You, you couldn't think that you could go any higher. And so the, the eighth chapter of Romans is kind of like that. We come from this high point, no condemnation. That's the beginning of the chapter. And as he works through all the blessings we have in Christ, he gets even higher. And, and so you start getting to um, what you might call the rarefied air of worship that he finishes with. He, he takes it right up into the superlative uh, as he just marvels at what Christ has done for him, and he starts to enjoy the blessings that we have in Christ. So I think that's why people think so highly of this chapter. It's really, the, the like we said at the beginning, it's the conclusion and climax of all the rich truth that Paul has been explaining in those first eight chapters. Um, and we can also see that that doctrine, that learning theology, that understanding the truths of the Bible, the truths of the gospel, it leads to praise. It's not boring and dry. When we look at what God's done for us, when we break it down and we look at all the different parts, they thrill us. These truths excite us. So Paul's theology climaxes in this eighth chapter and it, and it becomes an outpouring of praise and so our, our knowledge of God rises and our, our appreciation of him rises with it. And so verse 2 continues. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I'm, up to, I'm looking at the time. It's 5. Is it 5-2? I'm up to verse 2. <laughs> We're going to go quick. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And here we start to see, I love this word, we see a great liberation, a great setting free has taken place. We've been set free from the power of sin by a new and stronger power. And I love the idea of that, a new and stronger power. And here we're introduced to the first of approximately 19 references uh, that's in this chapter alone to the Holy Spirit. He was absent in chapter 7, absent in chapter 6. I think he was mentioned once in chapter 5, 
not a single time in the first four chapters. And in this eighth chapter, the work and the power of the Holy Spirit bursts onto the scene, and we get to see and appreciate everything that the Holy Spirit is working in us and doing for us. And so we we are announced in this uh, passage to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 3 continues, and it says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that was the futile picture, it says God did. And those are two sweet words. What we couldn't do, God did. Which means that we couldn't keep God's law in the flesh, but Jesus kept God's law for us. That's what's given to us. That's the righteousness that, that can justify and free us is because Jesus kept God's law. And after breach, so briefly mentioning our justification, uh, Paul turns his attention to the work of the Spirit that comes into our life to change us from the inside and to make us holy. And so now, if being in the flesh meant being unregenerate, uh, sorry, unregenerate and dominated by sinful, oh, sorry. Now, if being in the flesh means being unregenerate and dominated by sinful impulses, then being in the spirit means being regenerate and dominated by the things of God. If being in the flesh was Paul's word for fallen humanity, Uh, for fallen human nature apart from God, corrupt, directed, and controlled by sinful impulses, then being in the Spirit is Paul's words for redeemed human nature, directed and controlled by the Spirit of God. And if being in the flesh spoke of the totality and disposition of a person, their overall bent and ruling principle that characterized their life, then being in the Spirit means that there is now a new bent and a new ruling principle that characterizes our life. We have a greater power dwelling in us. And so being in the Spirit is a way of speaking about the tangible difference that God starts to work in the life of those that put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this doesn't mean that we are instantly perfect. You need to understand that as well. And it doesn't mean that uh, because we still struggle with sin and some of you take longer to sanctify than than other people we still struggle with sin um there's a little poem i i had on my wall and it says uh to live above with the saints we love oh that will be glory but to live below with the saints we know well that is a different story (laughs) but we still struggle (laughs) we still struggle with sin but we have a ruling power in us to help us overcome what, what enslaved us in the past. That's, I think, the main point that these chapters bring out. Um, so we have a, a strong helper in the Holy Spirit. And it means that the future and fullness of our salvation is guaranteed. I think the book of Ephesians says that the Spirit is a down payment, a guarantee of our future inheritance. So there's, we have it now, but not completely our inheritance is coming, but we, we, we own it. We, it's starting to be unfolded in our life. That restoration is starting to take place. Uh, and John Owen, he makes some great comments about the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about this new life which is promised. He says, there is, great, uh, sorry, there is the great means of operation. That's how this change comes about, the great means of operation. And that is the Spirit of grace. He because the Holy Spirit is a person. He works the mercy of the promise upon the soul. 
he also, and I love these words, he also is able, exceedingly powerful to effect the end appointed. And so we have this omnipotent, all-powerful power of God and Holy Spirit, so the power of God in the soul of a man to change us. So this is the second dominating power. It's the power of being in the Spirit. When we were in the flesh, we were unable, and now we're in the Spirit, and we are able. There is an enabling grace through the Holy Spirit, and and now you could let that biblical concept of ability sink in. Sink in. Think, think about that. We, we are now able to do and live how we, how we once couldn't. And so the fourth point, um, the fourth point is the second experience. So we've seen the, uh, the dominating power of being in the flesh. We've seen the futile experience. We've seen the dominating power now of the Holy Spirit that is stronger and more powerful, uh, that comes into our life. And so that leads to a second experience. Um, and so um, really we, we just see a stark contrast, don't we, between the misery of sin and, and it's just quite simply the joy, uh, the exalting, the joy of our salvation. And, and this is, uh, leads us to one of the other great themes of this eighth chapter is the subject of a believer's assurance of our salvation. It's the fact that we know that we're saved. The assurance. Uh, and if you look at verse 28, we've just skipped a huge section, by the way. We're making good progress all of a sudden. 8 verse 28, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work for good. Oh, sorry, to work together for good for, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's what we're talking about. We're made more like Christ, uh, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. And I had coffee with another pastor uh, earlier in the week, and he made a comment, and it struck me. It was quite, quite remarkable. He said, some people seem to have an allergic reaction when they hear words like foreknowledge or predestination. When they hear those words in the Bible, and in verse 28 to 30, we have one of those passages, and we have those words mentioned. And, and this verse is absolutely incredible. It pictures a God who is in sovereign control of providence and governs the course and actions of the world uh, by the word of his power. And it says, in effect, that, that God will use this great power, that is the control and governance of the entire world, God will use that great power for us. Isn't that incredible? And so he will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God. And I'd, I just don't think it's a good idea to throw those great words out of the Bible. Isn't that neat? Anyway, the verse is also called uh, the golden chain of redemption. Perhaps you've heard that. Think of a chain, metal links. Metal is strong, links uh, hold, hold all the individual pieces together. The golden chain of redemption. And gold, I guess, because it's so valuable. I'm not sure I just made that up right now, but it sounds good. And... It's the means that there are certain. Uh, it means that there are certain links in the chain, certain stages of our salvation, our, our calling, our predestination, our, our sanctification, all the different aspects of it. 
uh, are all linked together and inseparably linked. They are bound together in a way that they cannot be separated or broken. That's the idea of that passage. And in a nutshell, what it amounts to, we could look at Philippians 1.6, and it says, I am sure of this, and Paul is sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And so he is sure that when the first link in that salvation, when you believe and are justified and your sin is forgiven, he will clean up your life and he will bring you all the way home. It's part of a chain, uh, the work of God. Uh, And so these are promises that we take great confidence in. So what God has planned, God has promised, God will perform and God will complete. And And when we believe that salvation is wholly a work of God, which is what we believe, we love to believe that salvation is wholly a work of God, this is the corresponding security that we get from that theology. Because it's all the work of God, uh, we can know that He secures every part of it, that He holds us tight. And if we think of our salvation as something that we do in our own flesh or strength, then that will suck the life out of our security. If you think it's up to you to continue doing it, you might wake up tomorrow and have a bad day and you might lose your salvation because you weren't working hard enough. But when you attribute all of the work of our salvation ultimately to the cause of God, you know that He is strong, He is able, He will bring you to the end, He secures your future. And so these These theological distinctions we make are hugely practical, helpful, comforting, encouraging. Uh, They they change the way we live. They give us hope. Um, And if if you jump down to verse 31, I do need to wrap up. It says, what what then shall we say to these things? And essentially, he's he's speechless. (laughs) What do we say to all these great blessings we have in Christ? We haven't even looked at the adoption Uh, The fact that we're heirs of everything that God is going to give to Christ. We're joint heirs with him. We're sons. We're not slaves. You know, when you're a son, everything the father owns is going to be one day given to you. And so we're sitting here. There's so many things we've just skipped over. But what shall we say to these things? And so there's nothing to adequately describe it. He says, if God is for us, everything God is. Think of his attributes. Think of everything about him that you know. And he will use all of those for your good. God is for us. Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Do you worry about sin and guilt? Who could bring a charge against us? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. He rose from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We could spend an hour talking about that. Jesus prays for us, stands at the right hand of the God of the Father, God the Father, pleading our case. <clears throat> and so it finishes, who will separate us from the love of Christ? No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Uh, there is nothing that can separate us from this love of God. It's an unbreakable, it's a fixed firm reality that if God has started this in you, if you've believed in him, he will bring you all the way. He will change you. And let that encourage you. He will sanctify you. He will pull you free from the sin that that entangles. Uh, But that is is really, that's 
That's the experience. So we have the, the misery, the utter misery and helplessness of sin. And we compare that with the joy that we have of our salvation in Christ, the freedom we have in Christ, uh, the comfort, the hope that we have in Christ. And I'll leave you with this final thought. It's John Owen again. He says, God principally declares, think carefully, that faith in the promises, so faith in the promises and the accomplishment of the promises are inseparable. Faith gets you everything. Faith in the promises and the accomplishment of them are inseparable. And so if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, every part of your transformation, your salvation, your forgiveness, every part of it is guaranteed. So we'll close in prayer and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for so many things. We thank you for uh, this incredible work of salvation that was planned by the Father. We, we thank you for all these the work that was accomplished by your Son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who powerfully applies all these saving graces to us. May you grant saving faith. May you sanctify your people. And we just stand amazed. Amen.